Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to Luke. Then one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to eat with him. He entered the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And a woman in the town who was a sinner found out that Jesus was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house. She brought an alabaster jar of perfume and stood behind him at his feet, weeping, and began to wash his feet with her tears. She wiped his feet with her hair, kissing them and anointing them with the perfume. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, This man, if he were a prophet, would know who and what kind of woman this is who is touching him. She's a sinner. Jesus replied to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. He said, Say it, teacher. A creditor had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. Since they could not pay it back, he graciously forgave them both. So which of them will love him more? Simon answered, I suppose the one he forgave more. You have judged correctly, he told him. Turning to the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she with her tears has washed my feet and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but she hasn't stopped kissing my feet since I came in. You didn't anoint my head with olive oil, but she has anointed my feet with perfume. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven. That's why she loved much. But the one who is forgiven little loves little. Then he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, who is this man who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Gospel of the Lord. All right, I'm back. Here we go. <laughs> you may have noticed that a couple pastors are missing. Cody and Paul are actually at a conference they left for this weekend. I'm going to be joining them uh, tomorrow. But before I do, I'm so excited and glad to be sharing with you today and to walk through this passage with you. If you've been with us, we're in the third week of our parables uh, series, these stories of Jesus that all have a much deeper meaning to them. And as I was thinking about this parable that we're going to look through for the next few minutes, it reminded me over the years as a pastor, sometimes I'm invited to be a mediator, to step in in relational situations where things may be a little bit odd, where there might be some estrangement and to help mediate. And I remember years and years ago, I was asked by a, a couple, a married couple, to step in and to mediate a meeting between them and between one of their um, one of their uh, parents, one of the couple of parents. And so I said, yeah, absolutely. And so we had this plan. Um, we were going to meet at this space with a private room and have this discussion. And as I was driving there, I got a text saying, hey, location's changed a bit. Uh, something came up. And so they sent me the new address. And I, and I typed it into the GPS or phone. And, and so I was headed there, and I didn't think much of it. But as I'm pulling in to this address, I have that, oh, no, type moment right? I'm pulling into a restaurant parking lot. And I won't say which restaurant it is, but they do offer unlimited uh, breadsticks, salad, and soup. And, um, and I'm like, this is going to be awkward. This is not the place for a mediation. But hopefully there's a private room in this restaurant somewhere that we're going to meet. And I go in and nope, that's not it. We are in a booth. We're in a booth in a crowded restaurant, unnamed, um, trying to have this deeply intimate conversation. 
and I couldn't leave, <laughs> no matter how much I wanted to. And it was awkward, right? Today, we step into this really awkward dinner where we have three characters. We have Jesus, who's the main character, and then we have this Pharisee, this religious leader, and as we see, we also have this woman who steps in. And what we're gonna see is that thoughts are read, we're gonna see judgment passed, we're gonna see hearts exposed. But I wanna say this at the start so that we enter this in the right way. For both of these people that you see in this story today, for the, for the Pharisee, Simon, and for this woman who enters this house, they both need the gospel. The story isn't intended and no parable is intended to shame us or to lead us to doubt, but instead it gives us an opportunity to step back, to reflect, to process, and then respond accordingly. That's what parables do, knowing that through it all, we have a God who is patient, who is kind, and not cold and calloused. And so with that, let's pray and we'll enter into this parable today. Jesus, thank you for your word. Thank you for this story here within this bigger story, within this encounter. I pray that no matter what we came in with today, no matter what we're holding, that you would meet us wherever we are. I pray that you would take down roadblocks. I pray that you would take down hesitancies. I pray that you would take down pride. I pray that you would speak to us through your word, through your very words, Jesus. We pray this in your name. Amen. All right, we're going to start, we're going to jump in. Verse 36 here is where it starts, this encounter. It says, then one of the Pharisees invited him, meaning Jesus, to eat with him. And so he entered the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. Now, what was Simon's motive? That's who he is. We're going to learn that in a minute. What's his motive for inviting Jesus in? Because we kind of know the end of the story. And the Pharisees and Jesus, they don't get along that well, right? One group puts the other one to death. Not a good combo here. So why would Simon invite Jesus in? Well, it may have been for a variety of reasons. Maybe he was just curious because this is actually early on in Jesus' ministry. Or maybe he was celebrity seeking. He saw that Jesus had a following. He's like, hey, this guy seems to be the talk of the town. Come eat at my house. Most likely, though, it was because he wanted to try to catch Jesus and find a flaw in him. And so he invites him into his home. Now, dinner parties at this time were a little bit different than today. This is going to make sense in the context, but so we understand this. When there were dinner parties like this, those who were in need, the poor, they could actually come in and they could take leftovers to care for themselves. And in the same way, people could observe from outside on the streets. They could look in and observe, right? I wouldn't like this. This is strange today, right? But this is how it goes down today when it comes to dinner parties. So this makes sense. So this woman, it says in verse 37, in the town who was a sinner, found out that Jesus was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house. Now, by the way, this is not Mary of Bethany that we find in John 12. That happens in, this happens in Galilee at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. That happens at the end of his ministry. And this woman, it says, she brought an alabaster jar of perfume. This is expensive. It's not cheap. And she stood behind him at his feet, weeping, and began to wash his feet with her tears. She wiped his feet with her hair, kissing them and anointing them with the perfume. This is a wild scene. This is not normal. This is the moment in the dinner when you can hear a pin drop and everybody stops and they turn and they look to see what's happening. What's this commotion as this woman is overwhelmed by her own emotions. 
as she's literally crying at Jesus' feet and lets down her hair and wipes his feet, his dirty feet, with her hair. This was scandalous. This was inappropriate. In fact, in that time, for a woman to let down her hair in public um, was worthy of divorce or to be imprisoned. So what she is doing is not socially acceptable. So what's happening here? I love what James Denny says. What an extraordinary demonstration. Now, we might be tempted to say, was it hysterics? Was she having an emotional breakdown? No, it was regeneration. It was a new birth of faith and hope and love evoked and welcomed by Jesus. It was the passionate experience of a sinner's relation to a gracious God. This woman is overcome with love because something deeper that we don't see yet is actually happening here. Now, as this, ha- as this is happening, as it's a little bit awkward, as it's uncomfortable, when the Pharisee, Simon, who saw this, said to himself, here's what he says, this man, if he were a prophet, he would know what kind of woman this is who is touching him. She's a sinner. What does that mean? She was a prostitute in the town. And he knew all about her past. And he knew all about her reputation. And he doesn't say this outwardly, but he thinks it inwardly. And then Jesus replied to him, which is scary, right? It's like, Simon's like, did I say that out loud? Like, what are you responding to? Like, I just thought that. But Jesus knows his thoughts. He knows his heart. He knows where he stands. So Jesus responds to him and says, Simon, I have something I want to say to you. And he said, say it, teacher. And even with his terminology of teacher, Simon tells you a little bit about what you need to know about his heart. He doesn't say Lord. He doesn't say Savior. He doesn't say Messiah. Teacher. Okay, what do you want to say? What do you want to tell me? Right? Simon, he was a religious leader. Now you might say, oh, he was a religious leader. So he would obviously have compassion for this woman. No, not at all. His heart is exposed. And what you actually get from Simon here is you get contempt, you get a complaint, and you get confidence. He has contempt for this woman. He's only able to see what she's done, not who she really is. He has a complaint about Jesus that he would even allow this to happen. And he has confidence in himself that he would be able to stand back and judge her. Simon's unspoken thoughts here reveal so much of his heart. Now, he's not wrong about this woman being a sinner. Where he makes the mistake is that he fails to put himself in the same camp, in the same category. It brings in this doctrine that we actually believe in called total depravity. Some people call it uh, radical corruption. And I don't want you to get so stuck on the title as to what it actually says and what it means, and it's so important here. Here it is. That as a result of the fall of man in Genesis, every part of every human the mind, the will, the emotions, the flesh have been corrupted by sin. In other words, sin affects all areas of our being, including who we are and what we do. It penetrates to the very core of our being so that everything is tainted by sin and before a holy God. It acknowledges that the Bible teaches that we sin because we are sinners by nature, and this is something we are all born into. We are dead in our sin. And here's the truth. Dead people can't bring themselves back to life. That's not mind-blowing to you. I figured you knew that. But the point is one Simon was missing, and we can easily miss too. Here it is. We are all equally in need because we are all equally in debt. 
And this can illuminate two paths that we can be tempted to go down when it comes to our sin. One is, oh, if you knew what I've done, if you knew everything about my past, there's no way you would want to know me. And so instead of receiving grace or forgiveness, we walk around with shame. Or you can do what Simon does and says, if you knew all about them, there's no way you would want to know them and we judge and we condemn. When really the purpose, the right response is to simply see our need for something that we cannot provide ourselves. Now, the further explain this juxtaposition between Simon and this woman, Jesus tells a story, a parable. He says, a creditor had two debtors, one owed 500 denarii and one 50. Since they could not pay it back, he graciously forgave them both. So which of them will love him more? Simon answered, uh, I suppose the one he forgave more. You have judged correctly, he told him. So here's the deal about denarii. One owed essentially 50 days wages, not something small, but the other 500 days wages. A little bit harder to pay off, right? That's a tough payment plan, 500 days. And so it says that this money lender, he graciously forgave these debts. Charismoi, meaning coming from um, Charis meaning grace. Here's what the money lender does. He literally makes a gift of the debts. Now, why is it so important that we know this terminology correctly? Because it shows that he himself assumed and had to pay the debts. He didn't explain. He didn't excuse. He didn't extend the debts. He ended them by taking them on himself. They still had to be paid. And with this story, Simon begrudgingly has to admit that with great forgiveness comes a great response. As a kid, I don't know if you ever went over to people's houses to eat, um, neighbors, friends, people from church. I remember this as a kid riding over in whatever Buick my parents owned or maybe our Mazda minivan. And on the ride over, because my parents knew me well, they would say, hey, no matter what they serve tonight, <laughs> no matter how different it is, no matter what they do that's different than our house, you don't say anything, don't make weird faces, don't spit out food, you're going to eat everything, you're going to put on a good face, right? And, and we're just going to make it through the night, okay? Yeah, not Jesus. He rolls in and turns dinner on its head. He's like, hey, there's something more important that I need to show you here, even at the cost of this uh, nice dinner you've invited me into, which actually wasn't so nice. And so Jesus now goes from the story and he brings it down to ground level and here's what he does. He turns to the woman and he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house and you gave me no water for my feet, but she with her tears has washed my feet and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but she hasn't stopped kissing my feet since I came in. You didn't anoint my head with olive oil, but she has anointed my feet with perfume. Now, I love what Simon says or what Jesus says to Simon right at the beginning. Do you see this woman? This is much more than Jesus saying, hey, Simon, just look at her. No, do you see her for who she is? Do you see her as someone who has value and worth, someone to be loved, shown compassion, not outwardly judged and inwardly forgotten? Do you see her or has your pride so blinded you that all you can see is her reputation and her past? Simon's response to Jesus starts with the wrong view of self. For these corrupt religious leaders like Simon, it was all about outward appearance and performance. That was it. 
As long as they followed the rules, as long as they looked the right way, as long as they said the right things, as long as they gave enough offering, as long as they showed up to church enough, as long as they said enough prayers, they would be good with God, or at least these good works would offset, and God would have to show them kindness, mercy, and acceptance. And we can easily fall into this same trap if we aren't careful, even unintentionally, where we find ourselves trying to work to appease God, even though that's not at all what he wants, and it doesn't go anywhere. But why is this so tempting? Well, one, because we love control. Any control lovers out there? It's me. I love control. So I want to make sure that I have control in this relationship, and I want to make sure that you love me, and I have this fear that if I don't do enough for you, you might not love me as much, even though you've told me that's not at all true. But secondly, the alternative is that we have to actually take an honest look at ourselves. All our flaws, all our failures, all our insecurities, and that can be scary because it puts us in a position of vulnerability. But the alternative with continuing with a wrong view of ourselves is that it actually develops into pride. And so then we have to build up this false comparative where we say, well, at least I don't do what they do. At least I'm better than them. I must be okay with God because I do this and, and they do that. And where does that lead us? And by the way, this is all leading us downhill, right? This isn't redeeming at all. You sense this, right? It leads us to arrogance. We see this in Simon. Simon viewed himself as a little sinner in need of little grace, not as a big sinner in need of big grace. In comparison to this woman, he thought that he was far more righteous in his own eyes. But this could only be true if inward sins are less important than outward sins. And Jesus cuts to the heart and says, that's absolutely not true. Remember the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus said, hey, you've heard it said, don't murder. Otherwise, you're going to go to prison, essentially, right? And then he's like, I tell you, even if you're inwardly angry and have contempt against your brother or sister, you're just as guilty. And people are like, oh, no, Mm, that's going to be a problem, right? Here's Simon's response to Jesus. It starts with a wrong view of self. It leads to pride. It leads to arrogance, but then it ends up with apathy. Apathy. It's something I see in myself far more than I would like to admit. I think you can probably relate. Apathy. It's so easy to become, and here's what I mean. It's so easy to become so comfortable with this idea of grace that it starts to lose its wonder and awe. It feels like something we've lived with for so long that it starts to just become normative. We can even start to believe we actually just kind of deserve it, right? And we can start to misunderstand it. We can start to misuse it. We can even start to stop showing this kind of grace to others. And it's so easy. What I've noticed in my own life is it is so easy for this lack of awe for grace to become a lack of concern for my own sin. And so I just let it run wild. And I've seen this in different seasons of my life, different points of my life. I think it's something we can wrestle with instead of this grace, this beauty of grace becoming becoming this thing that we approach like a child that doesn't lose its wonder and awe that we're constantly and continually amazed by. Simon's apathy shows itself from the very beginning. You see, in this time, it would have been customary to have guests come in and to actually wash their feet to welcome them. It would have been customary to approach them and give them a welcoming kiss. It would have been customary to anoint them with oil, but that's not what we see at all in Simon. He does the bare minimum. Why? He hasn't experienced grace. He hasn't received grace. He thinks he's above grace. But that's not what we see from this unexpected guest. But before we get to her response, we have to read these last verses because it really puts this picture together. 
Jesus continues and he says, therefore I tell you her many sins have been forgiven. That's why she loved much. But the one who was forgiven little loves little. And then he said to her as a reminder, this beautiful line, your sins are forgiven. Meaning freedom, freedom. Here's what I want you to see. Forgiveness precedes love. And this is so important. It's so important we don't get this flipped. We don't first love God to try to earn his forgiveness. The forgiven person will love the forgiver because he has been forgiven, not in order to be forgiven. There's a direct correlation between our perception of forgiveness and our feeling of love. Where there is forgiveness, there will inevitably be love. The kind of love that is a direct response of pure grace brought about by gratitude. And the implication is so important to this very account. If this woman who has been used and abused by men in this town, probably her entire life, viewed and treated as an outcast, the town pariah, who has sat with the weight of her sin for years, who has been told that she would never be anything more than what her past defines her. If this woman shows love to Jesus, don't miss this, it's because Jesus is her forgiver, meaning it's clear that Jesus had an interaction with this woman prior to this encounter, somewhere in the town. She's already been forgiven. This is her response to come back in and find him and to worship And he didn't offer her more condemnation. He didn't offer her everything else that everyone had already told her. He offered her forgiveness. And the chain of response is so clear. And it's so beautiful here is that she starts with the right view of herself. She knew she was a sinner. She knew she was broken. She knew that she couldn't repair herself. And it leads to humility. And this humility puts her at the feet of Jesus. And Jesus doesn't respond like everybody else. Instead of condemnation, he offers her forgiveness. And so what's her response to that forgiveness? It's gratitude. And that gratitude leads to an overwhelming love poured out in her very tears and her response of worship. Her response here, it shows she has no fear of man anymore. Something she probably had for most of her life is now replaced through faith. Why is this? Because she's no longer condemned by her past by the words and treatment of others. She's forgiven and free. She's free to worship. She's free to fall at his feet, regardless of what anyone would say or think. Simon had power. He had status. He had wealth. He had education, but he was spiritually bankrupt. And his pride leads him to offer his very least while this grace this woman has been offered and experienced through Jesus leads her to offer her very best. What Jesus gave her was worth far more than her most valuable possession, this perfume. And so she breaks the jar and pours it out because he's worth it. Prior to Jesus, even if she stopped doing what she had done, the best she could hope for was to live a life of moral probation where everyone would say, I know what you've done. I know who you really are. Yeah, you might not do it anymore, but I know your past. And I'm going to still hold you to that. In fact, I'm going to press you down to that. That's going to be who you are. That's your true identity. But Jesus offers something so much better, this forgiveness soaked in grace. A grace with so much audacity that it would say, I see what you've done, and I know who you are. And I'm not scared off. In fact, let me make a place for you at the table because you now belong here. James Denny also says this. I love it. 
Apparently she was a sinner in the city, a prostitute of that unhappy class who walked the streets and lived by sin. There are none in the world more friendless, none from whom the passers-by more instinctively turn aside, none who ordinary society would be so determined not to receive. But Jesus did not shrink from this sinful woman. He received her. He took her side against the Pharisee, standing up for her. And as she went, she knew that friendless as she had been before she had, she now had a friend with God. It is not too much to say she knew that God himself was now her friend. And it says those who were at the table with him began to say amongst themselves, the murmuring starts, who is this that even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Don't miss what these people didn't miss. By declaring this woman has been forgiven, Jesus is taking the place of God himself. And Jesus doesn't forgive sin by trivializing it. He doesn't sweep it under a rug and say, oh, your sin, no big deal. Let's just ignore that. No, it's not that this woman's sins weren't a big deal. It's that her sins would be no match for what was coming, the atoning, fully satisfying death of Christ. That just as the moneylender in the parable forgave the debts by taking on the debt himself, Jesus will do this for this woman years later. He's the forgiver because he willingly took on the role of sin bearer, and not just for this woman, but for anyone and everyone who understands their need for God's grace and will place their faith in Jesus. That our sins are finally and completely obliterated, canceled, erased by the finished work of Christ. That not a trace remains. That the forgiveness is final and the freedom is unmatched. That the slave is free. The condemned are released. The unloved are lovable. The broken are put back together. The outcast welcome. The orphan given a home. The woman is given a new future. And the only and proper response from her and from us is gratitude and love as we are immersed in the overwhelming wave of God's grace, assuring us that our past no longer defines us and that we are now free to go in peace. Oh, the beauty of this grace. How can you not respond in gratitude? How can you not respond in love to the one that would reach down to us and pull us out of the pit? Her response is unbelievable, but it's the same response that should be evoked in us. And if it's dried up within us as if, if it's become normative, if we become a bit prideful for it, God wants to meet us right there and renew it. This big idea of the passage today is this, that a right understanding of our need for God's grace allows for a right posture to then respond to God's grace. And so how will we respond today? That's the question I want to leave us with. As we ponder this parable, as we reflect, as we process Again, not meant to shame us, but meant to lead us somewhere. Where we're going to start is not by feelings. We're going to start with truth. Some of you today may feel like you are beyond God's grace. And I will just affirm, as this passage is affirmed, you are not. No matter what your past says, no matter how riddled it may be, no matter the present wrestlings that you're dealing with, the addictions that you have, the things that are hidden away in passages of your life that you don't want exposed, that you haven't told anybody about, Jesus' grace is big enough, it's good enough to handle it and to clean you. And you don't have to and you can't do any of that work yourself. And that's good news because it's already finished. Would you come to him today? 
with all of your brokenness, with all of your flaws, with all of your insecurities, no longer fearful that he's gonna reject you, but assured that he's gonna receive you. Or maybe you've bought into this idea or you can feel this sort of stirring up inside of you of, of this judgment that you internally might have toward others or, or trying to see yourself as more righteous or maybe not as in need of God's grace or not as much of God's grace, that I'm relatively good, might we realize today that we are all equally in need and equally in debt. But it doesn't have to stay there because the beauty is we can move from there to confess, (laughs) to confess our sin, to confess our pride, to confess our fear, to hand it to Jesus and to receive this wonderful grace. And then to respond to respond like a child in gratitude and love. Not to earn it, but to respond because he's already given it to us. We were the woman and he's taken us in. We're the Pharisee and he's still offered us grace because he's so patient and kind, not cold and calloused. This is our savior that wants to meet us today wherever we are. So good, so kind, so gracious. Jesus, thank you for your word. Thank you for this truth. Thank you for this story. May you lead us to a right view of ourself and humility. And Jesus, wherever we are today, not, not wherever we find you, but wherever you find us, would you, would you reveal the things that you want to strip away? Would you reveal the things that you want us to confess? Would you renew our awe and amazement for this grace that was so costly. It's not cheap. It took your very life. And so may it never become normal. Jesus, thank you for your goodness. Thank you for your love. Thank you for your compassion, your mercy. We praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.